The following is a conversation with David Kitchen, a.k.a. Kitch. David Kitchen is a Pennsylvania native and the youngest head strength coach in NCAA history, doing so when he was only 24 years old. Today, he runs the Edge Leadership Academy, where he's spoken to numerous coaches, executives, and business leaders in helping level up their leadership. Tune in to hear more about his story. So, uh, Kitch, I think I'll call you that for the, the episode. Do you think leaders are born or they're made? Yeah, brother, I, I know that's kind of the age-old thought, right, and then the, kind of the chicken or the egg type conversation in a lot of, in a lot of circles. Um, for us personally and for me personally, I, I think leaders are built, right? So our whole company mantra is built, not born. Um, and I, I think that for a few reasons. One, because I feel like I'm a walking testimony to that. Um, I came from a single parent household, never met my biological father. Um, the, the male role models in my life were football coaches and teachers and things like that. Um, and I ended up being the youngest head strength coach in the country at, at 24 years old, went on to, to coach in division one football, division one men's basketball, run my own company. I'm a PhD candidate, but like, I think in just, again, looking at my own life, you can build these skills over time. Right. And the research points to that as well. So as I got into my PhD studies, I looked more into leadership. Obviously, that was my area of expertise, my area of focus. And the research all points that way as well. I mean, leadership is a set of skills that can be built over time. It just takes somebody that's willing uh, and able to spend the time learning those skills, honing those skills, practicing those skills, and then is able to uh, to um utilize their existing personality strengths and their personality traits to amplify those skills to create their leadership style. Got it. I uh, really appreciate the kind of background around there. And I think that was a, was a great answer to a question that I'm sure is asked, you know, every day in every locker room, every uh, synagogue, church, barbershop, what have you. Uh, but one of the things you brought up regarding your background, can you speak a little bit about kind of where you, you grew up? Yeah. So I'm from central, like kind of rural Pennsylvania. Um, it's, it's basically like if you ever seen the movie Friday Night Lights, it's like if you drop that in the middle of Pennsylvania. Um, mm-hmm. That's kind of where I'm where I'm from. It's it's a a unique area. Uh, like I said, I was from a single parent household. It was me, my brother, my mom, and then when I got to age twelve or eleven, eleven, twelve area, we moved in with my grandmother as well. And so uh, we grew up. The early part of my life was in town, and I was kind of running the streets and doing whatever I wanted to do, um, and being being a little knucklehead. And then once we moved to my grandmother's house, it was like rural Pennsylvania. Like we lived out in the woods. Um, and my sole focus at that point was football. And, and that was as young as, you know, 12, 13 years old. I realized like, oh, this is going to be the vehicle that's going to get me to college. Because being from a single parent household, college wasn't really an option if I didn't find a way to pay for it. Right. So I knew I needed to use athletics as a, as a venture to get there and as a vehicle to get there. Um, so I was really fortunate to grow up in an area that placed a large emphasis on athletics and had a really rich tradition of getting athletes, student athletes, opportunities at the next level. And I was fortunate to be a good player on a great team. Um, So I have to thank my teammates for letting me ride those coattails and and get an opportunity to go to college off of that. So, yeah, like I said, man, grew up in the mountains in the sticks of Pennsylvania. Um, So, you know, I'm as comfortable at a Drake concert as I am at at a Luke Combs concert. Um, you know, one day I'm wearing cowboy boots, the next day I'm in Jordan 4s. So uh, I'm a little bit of a uh, social chameleon when it comes to that. 
but I'm, I'm the sum of my experiences and some of, of the people that I've been around. And um, as much as our area is, you know, it may lack some diversity, which it definitely does. It also taught me a lot of lessons, a lot of those, you know, kind of hometown, small town USA lessons um, and that grit and that resiliency that I think has served me really well um, as I've gone throughout my career. So I, I'm always proud to say I'm from Burwell, Pennsylvania. Um, it's filled with good people that just show up every day and work hard. Got it. Uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to bring up, actually, a little off topic, but I, for those listening on this, um, just uh, on audio and not video, I love your background, by the way. You look like you could kind of, uh, after this podcast, go report for ESPN football on kind of the upcoming game. So <laughs> I, I love the background, man. I had to say that. Thanks. Yeah, no, most of those are um, either schools I coached at or gifts from clients. Um, so I, I was fortunate to have a long career in, in college athletics and, you know, it's kind of given me a, a little bit of a trophy room that, that's been put together um, with helmets and jerseys and things like that. You can't see it on camera, but there's there's jerseys hanging on all. Well, I guess there's one right behind me, but there's there's jerseys hanging on all the walls and stuff. So it's uh, yeah, man, athletics have been a, it's been a part of my my life to, for as long as I can remember. And, and uh, I'm always grateful that. I had the opportunity to be around the people I, had, I was around and, and at the institutions that I was at um, and then to experience some of the things that, that I got to experience, man. You see it on college football Saturdays, right? Like it's every kid, every football fan's dream to, to be standing in the horseshoe um, coaching against Ohio State on, on opening weekend. And I got the opportunity to do that, you know, and the same with USC and um, to be in, you know, Hawaii at Aloha Stadium, like all those things um, were really cool experiences that, that I'm always grateful that I had. Got it. You know, if one of your uh, clients or one of these football teams ends up winning the national championship or something else, they should definitely send you a ring for it for sure. Yeah, <laughs> that's it, brother. I can see Coach Kish would be a has a has a good name, and we'll we'll get into all that. But um, another thing, I wanted to ask you about your childhood. You know, I know you grew up kind of in you know not the best conditions. What do you think the biggest lessons were that you learned really growing up and having to kind of learn these things and kind of fight for everything and ultimately kind of becoming what you were today? Yeah, I learned a few things, man. The, the first one is that we are capable of hard things. Like as humans, I, I think a lot of times um, we wrap ourselves in bubble wrap and we, we kind of worry and, and, and we stress and we do these things. And my childhood showed me like you can do hard stuff. You can go through your, your body is, and your mind is capable of going through some really tough, challenging things um, and using them as lessons and fuel for the future. Um, so that, that's one of the lessons that I definitely learned. Definitely learned. Uh, the second thing is, is just watching my mom, right, and watching her um, go from being a, a single parent and then being in an abusive uh, marriage with, with a, somebody that was struggling with addiction to then going back to school getting a degree and now becoming one of the foremost experts in, in memory care for the elderly in the whole state of Pennsylvania. I mean, she speaks on stages, she does all these things. And for me, that reinforced a lesson that I've used my entire life, which is like, you can't lose if you don't quit. Like mm -hmm. it's really, really hard to break, to break somebody who just keeps coming back for more. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that's what I saw from my mother was just like every day you just wake up and you do what you have to do period. And you just don't stop. And it's that simple, right? And so if you start to define when the game is over, then you can't lose, right? The game's not over until I say it's over. Mm -hmm. and, and so for me as an entrepreneur, and even when I was a coach, it's like, I, I'm not afraid of much because I know I'm just going to keep going. 
You know, I know, like I know I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to keep shoveling dirt no matter what. Um, and I, and that comes from my childhood, you know, and that comes from, from going through that. Um, the other thing that I learned is that everybody is going through the process. Everybody is flawed. Everybody has, you know, on the outside, you, you see us a perfect life or you see this or you see that. Um, everybody's going through something, right? And, and we all have these lessons that we've learned um, from our childhood, right? And, and I, I say a lot of times, like, pain isn't a contest. It's not a contest. And we oftentimes try and compare our traumas and compare our pain to other people, right? And I'll be the first to say, my life was not like an episode of intervention or an episode of like, you know, some A&E late night special. Like it wasn't that bad, right? My mom did a great job. Um, but at the same time, those experiences that I did have, they left an impact on me, right? And so I think as an adult, um, it's our job to be able to look back at those things and not judge them and not judge the people that were involved. Instead, just pull the lessons from them and move on. Mm. Totally. I love that answer, man. Uh, you know, one of the things I just wanted to touch upon quickly, you said kind of, uh, you know, gravitating towards football and you mentioned Ohio State there. Did you grow up, uh, I know you said Central Pennsylvania. Were you close to State College by any chance? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I grew up. Uh, so my grandfather had, had season tickets uh, when we were young. And so probably when I got to, once we moved in with my grandmother, when I got to be like age 11, age 12, uh, we got the opportunity to go to some games, like saw Larry Johnson break the touchdown record and, and, you know, got, got to go to see, you know, Penn state, Michigan, all those, all those types of moments um, to be a part of that was, was really cool. So yeah, I grew up, grew up a Penn state fan. Um, and so the story that I always tell was when I was at UNLV, we played Ohio state uh, in the horseshoe on opening weekend. They beat us, dog walked us big time. Um, but when the game was over, because I'm a Penn State fan, I didn't shake hands. I'll be completely honest. I didn't do it. I, I just, I was walking across the field and I'm like, can't do it, man. I, I bleed blue and white. I just, it's just not in my nature. So uh, that was, that's always my, my little story. And I joke about it because I know the Ohio State staff never thought twice about it. But to me, it's like, I had to stand on my morals on that one. Yeah, no, totally. Definitely. I uh, can relate to you on that part. So I actually uh, went to Penn State. So uh, in my freshman year, you know, was more of a football fan and went to a few games. Those games are definitely legendary. Unfortunately, uh, this past weekend was a little rough for us. Um, you know, credit to, as much as you'll hate me saying this, I guess credit to Ohio State. I mean, they've been a unit of a team for a while now and uh, we're a little behind, but hopefully, uh, you know, we'll, we'll catch up to them eventually. It is what it is. They'll, they'll, they'll figure it out. They'll figure it out. I, I think, um, I think Drew Aller is going to figure it out. I think he's I think he's a good football player. I think he's got a really high ceiling. Obviously, the running backs are are phenomenal. Um, yeah, I'm not I'm not too concerned. Obviously, it was a rough weekend. It never feels good to lose to that team. Um, but you know, I'm I'm still excited about the future. I'm still optimistic about Penn State football and, and what they have in store. So it, it kind of is what it is. Yep, we'll see what happens. I mean, look, if Michigan and Ohio both lose in the playoffs again and somehow we win in the Rose Bowl again, you know, it's what happened last year. I think I think we'll say we'll take that for now, but uh, it is what it is. So cool, uh, cool thought on that. Um, you know, one of the things that you did as you were growing up and kind of as I, you went to college, one of the things that you gravitated towards was like strength and conditioning. So, you know, why did you gravitate towards that as opposed to another career path or what really appealed to that? What really appealed to yeah. you? So it actually started when I was young. Um, my my brother's father, so my stepdad. Uh, one of the one of the few good things that he he brought to the table was he did bring home a weight set for me when I was young. Man, I, I had to have been man maybe 
eight, nine years old, 10 years old. I was young, young. And it was like this old Walmart weight set. And I only knew how to do like two or three things on it. Like, I knew how to do like bench press and like some curls and, you know, a couple other little things. Um, and I remember when, when him and my mom would fight, like I would just have all these emotions and I didn't know what to do with them. And so after it was over, I would just go and just crank out reps on this little weight bench and just like try and put my energy somewhere, you know? And, uh, I fell in love with it and I was like, this is awesome. And then when I got older, um, I got introduced to like organized weightlifting. I got introduced to it through football. I was very fortunate that our high school had a really organized training program that started in seventh grade, right? So seventh grade, you start lifting weights and, and it's consistent all the way through. And what I realized was, um, the more disciplined I was in lifting weights and the more I pushed myself in there, the better I became on the field. And so I was like, okay, this is a pretty A plus B equals C situation, right? So I'm just going to really dive into this weightlifting thing um, and this training thing. And so um, that's where the love started. And then when I got to college, um, I got the opportunity. Well, it wasn't really an opportunity. It was kind of an unfortunate opportunity where I was injured a lot. And so I spent a lot of time in the rehab process. So I learned a lot about how the body worked. And so it kind of planted these seeds of like, that's a really cool thing of like, you know, being able to manipulate the body, manipulate the way you train uh, to get certain outputs. And so when I got out of college, uh, I was originally in IT sales. I started selling uh, cloud solutions mm -hmm. and I hated it, man. I was miserable. And a, a friend of mine called me and said, hey, I got a head coaching job at a local high school. Would you like to help out? So I came in and started helping out and I started, you know, training the kids. And, and at that point, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just you know, figuring it out um, and using programs that I had run myself or run through college. And I just, I loved it, man. I, I loved the the idea of teaching people to fall in love with the process, right? Because that's what weightlifting is. That's what strength and conditioning is. That's what training is. Um, because you don't get strong one day. You don't get strong two days. You don't get strong three days. You get strong by showing up day after day after day and putting in incremental work, you know, consistently. Uh, and so that's kind of what I fell in love with. And I think it teaches perspective, right? Because the weight room and, and you know, the, the strength life, the strength lifestyle, as we call it, uh, it doesn't reward anything but hard work. Like there's no shortcut. There's no, there's no, you can't fake it. Um, and so it's really been an anchor for me my whole life. So that, that's kind of why I, I guided towards that and why I kind of got um, attracted to that. And then, you know, once I got to step foot in a, in a college weight room, it was over. I was like, this is, this is home, man. This is, this is what I want to do. Um, and so I put together, you know, a, a really solid career for 10 years and, and I enjoyed every single day of it. Uh, it's awesome to hear. And, you know, all, we can all hope to just kind of do what we love and, and make a living out of it. You know, one of the things that I think is interesting when you're probably working with high school kids, uh, obviously as we get older, or most people tend to mature as we get older, uh, you know, working with high school kids, some of them may not, I don't want to say not mature, but some of them kind of may not realize like how healthy things are or kind of, you know, why you need to do certain things. I'm sure there's probably kids who are, you know, more mature, more motivated at a young age, but how did you go about working or kind of motivating these kids to get into weightlifting, which is like a really, it's, it's tough physically and tough mentally as well. So I'm sure, you know, being a, a coach is an art. So how did, were you able to kind of get in their heads and really get them to kind of immersify themselves and really kind of uh, get going with weightlifting? Yeah, for the for the high school kids, man, it was about keeping it simple. Mm -hmm. Like it, it was just about let's get really, really good at the basics 
Um, and I was stepping into a, a high school where there was no background of training. They didn't have a training program before we got there, um, before our, this coaching staff that I was a part of got there. And so for me, it was just about how do I make this an environment where people want to be, right? And ultimately, that's what coaching is about. Um, it, it's about creating an environment where you can hold people accountable because they know that you have their best interests in mind and that they want to be part of that, right? And so once you have that in place, now the, the, the goal is to create an environment where it's really uncomfortable to be the person who's not working hard, like to be the person that's kind of cutting corners and not doing those things. Like if you can make that person stick out like a sore thumb, they're going to change or they're going to quit, one of the two. And either way, I mean, it sounds harsh, but either way, I'm good. Like you're either going to change or you're going to leave. And that's fine because this is the culture that we're building here, right? And so that was the the idea. Um, the other part with, with high school kids, it's a little bit different um, because they're younger. And I was so young. I was only 22 at the time. Right. So for me, like I can walk the walk, you know what I mean? I'll go in there and throw some weight around and they saw the career that I had as a player. And I told them, you know, I was very honest with them. Like I would not have been a, a college football player if it wasn't for the weight room. Mm -hmm. Like my inherent talent was, was not that special. It was the fact that I worked harder than other people that got me an opportunity at the next level. Um, and so, you know, those lessons combined with just, just building trust, man, it's just like leading a business. The people have to know that you're there for them, right? It's not about you as a coach. It's not about you as, as, a, as a boss and as an employer. Um, it's about getting people to understand that you're there for them and you're there to serve them. And my job is just to help you get to the place that you want to be. For sure. I totally think that's valid. I think a lot of times as a coach, you're forced to make a lot of tough decisions. But, you know, that's the nature of uh, nature of the beast. Uh, you know, another loaded question, which I think maybe you've been asked before, what do you think separates, you know, a bad coach from a good coach from a great coach? If that makes sense. I think uh, one, one of the telltale, telltale signs um, of, of a good coach is somebody who's consistently looking to get better. Um, somebody who's asking questions, somebody who is, is willing to improve. Uh, one of my red flags when I'm looking at coaches, whether I'm hiring them or people that I may go work with, um, if you don't have a mentor or you don't have people that you ask questions to, I, I don't really want to be around you because that tells me that you have a fixed mindset um, and that it's about you, right? And that you think you have it figured out. And so anytime I get any sniff of somebody having an ego, um, that's immediately a turnoff for me as a coach. I immediately, you know, look at that person. I'm like, mm, that, that's going to, that's going to burn you in the long run. Um, coaching ultimately is the relationship business and that's what we have to understand. And so the minute that the student athletes aren't the focus of what we do every single day, that's when you're headed towards trouble. Um, and so I always look at the best coaches that I've been around are the ones that the student athlete is at the center of every single decision that they make. Everything that they do is about making sure that the kids have what they need and that the kids are taken care of. Like that's the key to it, and especially the college level. Um, these parents are trusting you with their child uh, for the next four years, and you're going to be the most influential voice in their ear for the next four years. That is a responsibility. Um, you have a responsibility to teach these young men and young women response patterns and habits and skills them for the rest of their lives, regardless of wins and losses on the field. And so to me, 
Um, those are the things that I look for in a coach. I want to know what's your leadership philosophy. What do you, what do you believe? Um, and who are you as a human, right? I, I don't believe in, in smoke and or smoke and mirrors and, and the show. Um, and at times with, with our current society, um, it can be about social media and Twitter and Instagram and this and that. And how do we build a brand? Um, to me, it's it's got to be deeper than that, man. It's got to be something that you are called to do. Um, you are called to serve. And and when you're a coach, it is not about you. Never has been, never will be. The best coaches I've been around, they're nowhere to be found when people are taking credit for wins. But as soon as somebody takes credit, somebody, as soon as we lose, they're the first one to step up and say, hey, that's on me. Right? Mm-hmm. So those are the things that I look at um, in coaching. I think the, the better the coach, the more selfless that individual is. Got it. Interesting. I think uh... – would be cool to hear the thoughts of uh, the greats like Nick Saban and uh, Bill Belichick and uh, Greg Popovich always comes to mind. I think people always, uh, I don't know why, but I know Pop is more basketball oriented, but for whatever reason, I think, you know, not to discredit the teams he had. I mean, Tim Duncan, Mono Ginobili, Tony Parker. And I mean, now he's got Wemby who, who looks like he's going to be the next big thing. Um, but at least in, in football, like Alabama is known for like the best, uh, is known for the best talent or like Bill Belichick had, you know, arguably the best quarterback ever. You know, the, the Spurs over a 15-year period had, like, a core that none of them were – well, I guess Duncan was a superstar. But none of them were, like, ever, like, top five in the NBA. But they were always, with, like, a different rotation, sustained excellence. And then when they did win in, like, the tail end of their career, I mean, Kawhi is a, is a beast now, but he was only 22 when they won then. And, you know, the one guy that was the most important part, they had to kind of elevate him. So really uh, really interesting to hear from kind of from those, uh, those voices. And I'm sure they probably echo what you said. Um, the other thing that I wanted to touch upon that I think you mentioned earlier, but you were fortunate enough to work with basketball and football players. Do you have a preference for which sport you like most or which sport you enjoy? <laughs> oh, man, you're, put, you're putting me on the spot here. Now, I, I loved all my guys, man. I, I loved all of them. And, you know, it's just two, it's two different beasts, right? And it's, it's two different approaches. It's two different um, – it's just two different animals, really. Because right. if you think about it from a collegiate standpoint, right, football, you're training – eight months out of the year for a four-month, three-month, really, three-month season. Um, and it's obviously ingrained in the culture of football to lift weights and to be big and strong and powerful and, and fast, right? Like, that's part of the culture. They understand that. And so the intensity level can be a little bit higher, um, and it's it's a, a little bit more of a testosterone-filled environment. Not saying that basketball players aren't tough, but – it's just, it's a highly competitive, highly, um, it's almost like a powder keg, right? Like there, there, there's like some of the best training sessions I've been around. You're like worried. Like you're like, yo, somebody might get punched in the face today. Like these guys are on edge. Like there's, there's a, there's a, a palpable feeling, um, to a football weight room when it's cranking. And that, that I think is really fun. And just the number of people on the team, right. is is, um, really unique as well. But with football, again, you have to train, you know, different position groups in different ways and you have to train them different. There's different priorities, things like that. So that's different. And then basketball is a completely different animal because the season is almost six months long. Mm -hmm. And so your biggest uninterrupted training period throughout the year is your season. So whereas in football, you kind of turn the training down during the season as far as volume and how much you're doing in basketball, that's your biggest opportunity to make gains. And so it, it's a different mentality that you have to take as a coach. Um, and then obviously basketball is just a different sport. I mean, you get so many different athletes 
in basketball. Um, you know, a lot of people, you just think all oh, tall and skinny, right? But, but there's so many different things because how are they tall? And what I mean by that is, are their femurs long? Do they have a long torso? Do they have really long arms? Like what's the actual build that makes them tall? And then you got to adjust off of that, right? So I think you have to be a lot more creative to train basketball. They required, it made me a better coach. It was challenging. Um, and the other thing is you got to remember as a general rule, um, it's not true of everybody, but it's a general rule in basketball. They don't want to lift. They want to hoop. Like, mm-hmm. like they want to hoop. That's what they want to do, right? And so you have to create an environment, again, where they want to be there and they're willing to buy into what you're doing. Like my guys at Georgia Southern, man, they were savages in the weight room. Like those dudes were bangers. They would come in and, but it didn't start out that way. It didn't, I had to, I had to build the trust. I had to build the relationship. I had to show up day after day and show them that, Hey, the one, these things work Two, They had to see it pay off on the court. Three, they had to know that I love them. Like they had to know that I'm there for them every single day. And then by the middle of the season, I mean, we had dudes before we left for the conference tournament, we had guys hitting PRs on the bench press and squat. So you're five months into the season, and we got guys that are hitting PRs after playing three games a week for the past, you know, however, 24 weeks. Like, we had dudes that were just bought into what we were doing. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of differences. I enjoyed training both. I, I think basketball season is, is a really unique challenge because you got to keep getting stronger, but you also have to remember you're playing three times a week. So you have to stay fresh, right? So you got to be careful with what you're doing and be smart about your approach uh, versus football. You can kind of go, you know, gas pedal down all summer, pull off right before camp, then go gas pedal down after bowl season till spring ball. You know what I mean? So there's kind of a more natural ebb and flow to football. Basketball is a little bit more, it requires the coach's eye. It requires you to have a pulse on how your team is feeling and what you're doing so that you know how to apply different stimulus to get a specific response. Got it. So it just sounds like, you know, not, you don't prefer it one or the other. They're just two different beasts at the end of it. Yeah, man. I, I enjoy, I enjoy both of them. I, I just, I love being around competitive people. I love the, the college guys keep me young. Um, I love being around. They're full of energy. You know, they're highly competitive, whether it's football or basketball. Um, and I'll tell you what, I worked with some female athletes that were absolute savages. Mm-hmm. Um, I wor- worked with some, you know, some women's lacrosse players, some field hockey players that were just dogs. Um, we'd have, I had a field hockey player one time. She squatted 335. I mean, she, she was a savage, you know? And so I, I love being around people that just buy into the process and they want to be the best versions of themselves. Got it. That's awesome to hear. You know, so you were one of the youngest coaches. I'm, I think actually the youngest at NCA strength and conditioning coach. And instead of continuing on your career there, you decided to kind of venture out and do your own thing and create your own company called the Edge Leadership Academy. So what really went into the decision to kind of break off and do your own thing? Yeah, I had I had, had a ten year career. Um, well, at that point it was eight, so I was eight years in. Uh, I was at the Division One level. I was at Georgia Southern, and when you're at that level, you're tied to your head coach. And so, you know, if he leaves, I I leave, right? If he gets fired, I get fired. That's kind of the way it goes. Mm-hmm. And so, our head coach at Georgia Southern took another job at another university, and that for me was kind of a wake up call of like, dude, you're not in control of your own life. Even though you've put together this great career over eight years and you rose really quickly through the ranks, you're still not in control. And so that was for me kind of a, a wake up moment of like, hey, if you wanna be in control of your finances and be in control of your financial future, 
Um, I don't know that coaching is, is the way to go, right? Because on the outside, a lot of people look at division one coaching and they're like, oh, those dudes are getting paid, right? And it's like, no, the top 1% are getting paid. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is is making, you know, I mean, to be completely transparent, I was making probably 45000 um, mm-hmm. as a division one coach. And so it's like, it's not that much money um, for the amount of work you're putting in. You know, you're working 70, 80 hours a week every week. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that was part of the decision. The other part was the the conversations that I had had with with players about leadership and about how important it was and how, you know, some of them felt that they never were given the skills to be leaders and they were never taught those skills. And so that was um, another piece of it for me because I was hearing it from everybody. I was hearing it from coaches, administrators, pro scouts, et cetera, that we need more leaders, right? And yet these young men and young women didn't feel like they were getting taught the skills to lead. And so as an entrepreneur, you see a gap, you fill the gap, right? Like that's that's the goal. And, um, you know, so that's kind of what, what played into that. Um, and, and from there, you know, I stepped out and I started the, I I walked away from the contract from my contract extension. I started the business. Um, originally I was going to just do that full time. I was not going to go back to coaching at all. And I was able to support myself for two years like that. And I opened a gym, um, and I had a performance center, a 22,000 square foot performance center, as well as the leadership business. Um, and then I closed the gym. And I got a call from my alma mater and they asked me to come and coach um, strength and conditioning at, at my alma mater. And I wasn't going to because I said I was done with college athletics. I just wanted to be an entrepreneur. I didn't want to be back in college. Um, but the people there mean a lot to me and that university means a lot to me. And so I was able to work out a deal with our athletic director that I could continue to run my business. It would allow me the freedom to you know, travel and do the things I needed to do, but I would be there to write the programs, train the majority of the teams. I would have assistants, you know, I had had, uh, people that worked underneath me that ran a lot of the day-to-day stuff. Um, And I was able to train a few of the teams as well. And so that, that's kind of, it worked out for a couple of years and then eventually got to a point where the business was to a point where I was losing money by coaching. Right, because I was passing on opportunities, um, mm. and so it's like, all right, I, I have to step away now and 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 just run edge. I can't, I can't be the the captain of this ship and be the captain of this ship. Like, I need to step away. Um, so that's kind of how it all started, and that was that was recent. So altogether, I coached for ten years, um, eight of them being prior to edge, and then two of them being after I started edge. I think that's a very fair assessment. I think uh, a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, when they when they know, they know. And I think one of the decisions that you mentioned or one of the things that happened uh, when you started to realize that, like, you were passing on opportunities because you were trying to steer both ships. And it's definitely a tough decision to make because, you know, obviously it's it's nice to kind of make a good living. But if it's a job you really enjoy, it's tough to walk away from. But sometimes you just know if you know, you know, if you're missing on other opportunities for one thing and your calling is really that, uh, that's kind of when you got to make the shift. So I definitely, I definitely applaud you for that. Bit of a bit of an off-topic question, but what was the process like for opening a gym? How was that? <sighs> Honestly, man, it, it's every entrepreneur has that story that they're like, I, I wish I didn't do that. Um, <laughs> and and that was mine. Mm-hmm. So I had been out of coaching. Um, I was doing the I had Edge Leadership Academy up and running. We were profitable. I was making money. Um, I was happy. I was good. You know, and then I got a call from a friend of mine um, who had two other gyms. 
And he said, Hey, like I got this opportunity. I want you to take this meeting with this guy and just see what you think. So I went and met with the, uh, with this person. Um, and it was actually part of a nonprofit organization. So they wanted to partner with a, a sports performance company to open this facility. And they had had a facility prior and then COVID happened. So they shut it down. So they had all this equipment that was brand new and it was boxed up in storage containers. And they're like, we want to open this, this gym. And so we start talking, I go and I tour the location. It's, you know, like I said, 22,000 square feet. I mean, there's batting cages, an indoor soccer field, boxing ring, sweat or a spin area, a full training area for the gym. I mean, it was massive. And um, I'm like, all right, I'm in. Like, this is for me as a strength coach, like, this is a playground. Like, this is awesome, you know? Um, so I had never run a gym before. And my business partner at the time, like I said, had two other, had two other facilities, two other locations. And right after we did our grand opening, he stepped away and he said, Hey, man, I can't run all three. I, I got to go run these two. And so now I'm running everything. And I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, and so it was, there's so many things that go into running a gym that people don't realize, right? And so one of the naive thoughts for me was, oh, I'll just bring in college athletes. I'll bring in high school athletes. I'll get, you know what I mean? That'll be fine. I'm, I'm the only guy in the area with the resume that I have. It'll be no problem. Mm -hmm. What you don't realize is that doesn't, that doesn't keep the lights on, right? <laughs> like that's not enough money to keep the lights on. Yeah. And so we had to start doing all these other things. And it just... Um, there was just a lot of moving parts. I just wasn't ready for that venture. I had no idea how to run the back end of it. I had no idea how to run the infrastructure. Um, and so it, it ultimately was, it was successful. Like I walked out net positive. I walked out, I, I made money um, when I closed it down, but it just, I, I wasn't ready for that. And it pulled my attention away from my main business from edge. And so my edge profits started to come down because I was spending so much time at the gym trying to keep it up and running. And so it was just, it was just a, not a good situation for me. I just had too many things going on. Um, and looking back on it, like I said, I just wasn't ready um, to, to step into a space that I didn't understand at all. Got it. So it sounds like at the end of the day, uh, above all else, a lot of lessons learned and you know, now uh, kind of running a gym isn't, uh, isn't what you're made for. Yeah. I mean, I think long-term we could have figured it out. Like we were profitable, um, but it was just the amount of work that it took to be profitable is, was so like disproportionate, right. To, to what was worth it in my mind, right. What it was taking away from, because obviously being in consulting and being in the leadership side of things that those are high ticket offers for the most part, right. So you're making a pretty substantial return on your investment of time or, you know, whatever resources you're putting towards it versus the gym is like, you're, you know, 20 bucks here, 50 bucks there, 75 bucks here. All right, you got a membership for a hundred bucks here. Like it just, the margins are not great. And, and the amount of, of, and, and the other part was just the size of the building, right? Like our rent payment every month was substantial. Um, and so there's a lot of overhead versus in the consulting world, there's not a lot of overhead. So I had these two businesses that were on complete opposite ends of the spectrum as far as operating costs and profit margins. And it just, I was spending so much time in the business with low margins and it was eating away from my business with high margins, which was actually what allowed me to even get into the other business. So it just didn't make sense to stay in it, right? So could I have figured it out long-term and maybe balanced it? Eh, probably. Um, but do I think that it ever would have been like super, super successful? No. 
Got it. So it just wasn't worth like the opportunity cost of, you know, trying to really maintain the one business. Exactly. Exactly. When you become an entrepreneur, every single thing that you say yes to means you're saying no to something else. Mm-hmm. And so every single decision that you make becomes more and more important because your most valuable resource is your time. Mm-hmm. And so everything that every opportunity that gets put in front of you, you have to weigh it out. And if you don't, then you end up in situations like that. Right. And I was just young. It was my first experience in in building a second business. And, and I knew I wanted multiple businesses. Like I knew that edge wasn't going to be my only business. Right. So I saw the opportunity. I went into it. And, uh, but yeah, when you but typically you should try and run that opportunity cost analysis prior to getting into it. Right. Like I just did it out of order. I should have sat down with, with my business partner at the time and said, Hey, what is your, what is your day to day look like? How many hours are you spending? What are your profit margins? I didn't know any of that. I was just so excited that I was like, sign me up. Let's go. Let's figure it out. Right. And that's not the right op, the right attitude to have. Um, when you're talking about, you know, trying to run multiple businesses at once. Yeah, totally. I can definitely, uh, you know, resonate with that. And at the end, I think it's just kind of choosing what you want to do and sticking to it. And you got to make tough choices sometimes, but uh, that's life. Um, One of the things that you discuss is the five C's of leadership. So with one, would love to know kind of specifically what the five C's are and really what they mean to you. Yeah, so the, the five C's are, um, the five traits of high-performing leaders. They're the five things that, that set leaders apart uh, from just people with a title. And they're the five things that effective leaders have in common, right? And this is through my own experience and then also backed by psychology research. So what the five Cs are is they start with character, right? The first one is character. And we say in fitness and you say in athletics, you can't out-train a bad diet. The same is true in leadership. You can't out-lead bad character. Like at some point it's going to show up. And so great leaders have great character. They know who they are. They know who they're not. And they stick to that, right? They're able to lead authentically and they're able to show up as themselves. Then from there, once you have that character in place, you can now be consistent in the way that you behave. And that's what people are looking for when they're looking for somebody to follow. They're looking first off, are you somebody worth following? Are you going somewhere worth going? And then third, can I trust you? Mm-hmm. Can I even trust that you're going to be the same person every single day? And so we operate as humans off of pattern recognition. And so consistency is a huge piece of that because we want to give the people around us a baseline of who we are and allow them to almost be able to predict our responses moving forward. Right. And they should be able to predict those things because they know what our vision is, which is part of our character. And then they know that how do we operate on a daily basis. So being consistent is, is the second C. The third C is commitment. Because you can be consistent, right? But you're not necessarily committed to things. Commitment is a big piece. It's, uh, it's, ide- it's identifying and telling the people around you, what are you committed to, right? So you should be committed to the people. You should be committed, committed to the, the organization. And you can, should be committed to the vision, right? If you're committed to those three things, then the results will show. And the results will show up. And so great leaders understand what they need to be committed to. And they do it in a way that tells people, hey, I recognize the potential sacrifices that I'm going to have to make in order to make this thing work, right? I get it. And I'm okay with that. Once you have all that in place, you can now start to be creative in the way that you lead. And that's where great leadership thrives, right? If we think about, you know, sticking with the football theme that we've kind of had today, if we think about a great quarterback that won a Super Bowl, nobody says he managed his team to a Super Bowl. 
And we say he led them to a Super Bowl. And so leadership and, and creativity are synonymous, right? Those are things that we, we look for in leaders. And great leaders thrive in those figure-it-out moments. They know when to push, when to pull. They know what not only getting the right people on the bus and the wrong people off, but getting people in the right seats and then moving people seat to seat when they have to, right? Making pivots, making decisions. Um, that's part of creativity. And then lastly is the C that everybody expects, which is communication, right? Obviously, you have to be a phenomenal communicator uh, to be a great leader. And to me, I think of leaders as like musicians or DJs where you're standing in front of this booth with all these knobs and sliders. And it's like body language, tonality, uh, verbiage, all these different things, right? And you know which ones to turn up and which ones to turn down and how to get your message across in the most efficient way. And great leaders are phenomenal at communicating, but they're also great observers and great listeners, right? And those are the pieces of communication that we miss sometimes. Um, so to me, if you follow those five C's, what happens is you can start to build processes and systems in your life. And you can start to be really effective in the things that you're doing and really effective in influencing people and really effective in achieving results. And the other thing that happens is you're training the people around you to model those or to, uh, uh, yeah, to mirror those behaviors. So when you're modeling them, they're mirroring them. So now you have a team that operates like a bunch of leaders and you have people that are problem solving at a really high level, people that are communicating at a really high level. So your organizational habits get better and your culture gets better. And when your culture is in place and your habits are in place and the leadership is driving the ship at the top, the results are a byproduct. The results just happen naturally. Um, so to me, the five C's are, are the, the foundation and the concrete behind all of that. Got it. I think that was a, was a great breakdown of the five C's. Um, more specifically, something that leaders are able to do kind of in something that I read about edge leadership. You know, everyone's, everyone can kind of implement systems. Everyone can build habits, but life is full of difficulty. Life is full of adversity. A lot of times, you know, as tough as it is to accept, stuff happens that we can't control. So what would a great leadership response be? Or what do you see in great leaders when they deal with kind of adversity like that? I think I think the first thing is the ability to detach emotionally from the outcome, right? And and so um, to me, amateurs get caught up in wins and losses. Like pros are able to look at it and just say, did I win or did I learn? And then either way, I, learn, I have to learn from that, right? So you have to have a system for dealing with adversity, right? Starting with being able to detach from the outcome, being able to reframe the adversity and get excited about it and say, okay, no, this is an opportunity but what am I being tested on? What is the thing that is going to require for me to get through this, right? And really get clear on that um, and not get caught up in the things that they can't control. Anytime I'm with a leader and adversity is there and I hear them talking about things that they can't control, you're already losing the battle. You're already losing because you're putting time and energy towards things that have nothing to do with you. Um, and so it's reframing it and saying, okay, let me look at this from a different perspective. Let me say, what what skills, habits, et cetera, are necessary for me to overcome this adversity? Do I currently have them? And if I don't, do I have somebody on my team who I can go to that does have those skills that I can bring into the fold here, right? And that's part of the vulnerability of saying, hey, we're facing some adversity. I need some help here. And to me, that's a great leadership response. If you're able to say, hey, I think, you know, Joe in accounting could really help us with figuring out some of these cash flow issues. Let's bring him into the fold, right? Like that's leadership. 
Um, and that's being creative and finding creative problems or fi- finding creative solutions. Um, but I think the number one thing is being able to control your response, man. You cannot react to things. You have to respond. You have to choose next, right? And there's a space between what happens and what happens next. I call that the gap. Mm-hmm. In that gap, that emotional response happens. In that gap, you feel all those emotions. You feel the, the urge to react and do whatever comes naturally to you, whether it's an anger thing or a fear thing or whatever. You feel that. Great leaders and really successful people are phenomenal at navigating that gap and saying, mm-hmm. no, I'm not going to do my knee-jerk reaction here. I'm going to choose how I respond to this situation. Right. So you have to respond instead of reacting. Those are the things that I look for um, to me that are hallmarks of, of strong leadership. Got it. I think that was a great answer. And I also agree sometimes you have to be able to kind of emotionally detach yourself and really look at every quote unquote loss as a learning opportunity. So definitely resonate with the note there. Um, you know, you've done a lot in your career, I've done some incredible stuff. But if you could go back and give advice to your younger self, say 10 year old Kitsch, uh, what advice would it be and why? I, I think honestly, um, I would tell them two things. I would tell them first off, um, you're good enough, man. You, you are enough. You know, I, I would definitely tell him that and say, hey, listen, it's all going to be all right. It's all going to be all right. Um, and then the second thing would just be, dude, take big swings. Take big swings. Everything in life, man. When you get up to that plate for the fences every time, every time, um, because that has been – something that has served me so well throughout my career and I didn't have the courage to do it at first, right? I wish I would have learned it earlier. Um, I wish I would have learned it at 19 or 20. Like I see some of these, and again, it's not a comparison thing. I'm actually, I'm, I'm very proud of some of these kids, right? Like I'll, I'll have people reach out to me and like, Hey, I'm a 19 year old entrepreneur. I'm doing this, this, this. And I'm like, dude, good for you. Like good for you taking that swing, man. I did a podcast with some 17 year old kids and they were asking phenomenal questions. I mean, these kids were well-read. They were, they were all in it. And I'm like, man, that's awesome, right? But so for me, I would look back. If I could talk to 10-year-old me, I'd be like, dude, as soon as you get the opportunity, swing for the freaking fences. Don't ever play small. Don't mm-hmm. ever play small. Um, everything that you think you can do, you know, one of the things my business coaches um, has, has worked with me on is like, Anytime you think you have a number, like everybody has a number in their head, right? As an entrepreneur, like, hey, this is what I want to make. Add a zero. Like, add a zero to that, dude. Swing for the fences and go after it. You know, so that's that's the advice that I would give to my younger self. Got it. Awesome. I think that that's awesome advice. And the coach coaching the, the young coach at that point. Uh, I see a bunch of books you have there in the background. Uh, do you have a favorite book? And if so, kind of what is it and why? Yeah, my favorite that I've ever read um, would be As a Man Thinketh. Um, it, it's a short essay. It's not even, I don't even know if it's 60 pages. It might be like 50 pages. Um, but it's all about your mindset. And it's all about um, what what you create with your mind. Um, it's it's gets into making you think about whether your mind is a place of sanctuary or your mind is something that's destroying you from the inside out. Right. So I think that that is my absolute favorite book. Um, I, I read that multiple times a year. Um, mm-hmm. I go back to it's probably my most gifted thing, too. I give that to a lot, of, especially like my male friends. I'll give that to um, trying to look on the shelf here. Some of the other ones that I really, really liked. Um, I was a huge fan of Tribe of Mentors from Tim Ferriss. Um, and then any of the Ryan Holiday books, like I think if you're just starting out on your um 
on your self-improvement journey and on your entrepreneurship journey, like the obstacle is the way, um, courage is calling, dis- discipline is destiny. Um, all of those books will, will give you a leg up because it starts to reframe your perspective on, on how you deal with things. Um, and then from a business standpoint, probably uh, Principles by Ray Dalio. Um, Blue Ocean Strategy is, is really good. Uh, Think and Grow Rich, obviously, Napoleon Hill. Right um, and yeah, I'm trying to think if there's any other. Atomic Habits is another really good one. Oh, um, The Passion Paradox. I think every entrepreneur should read that. The Passion Paradox is is really, really important. Um, and I don't think there's any like, other really big ones. Anything on communication, like Talk Like Ted is real good. Mm-hmm. Um, just talking about storytelling. And I think your ability to storytell and sell as an entrepreneur is really important as well, obviously, because that's what you're doing. Um, but it's it's really important. So those are some of my favorites. I could go on all day. I'm a, I'm a nerd when it comes to the books, man. Yep, no worries. I think uh, the Passion Paradox, I like that name. I'll definitely add that one to the reading list. Uh, if you could have dinner with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? I've gotten asked this question before, and, and every time I think I have an answer, it always changes a little bit. Um, I'm super intrigued, super intrigued with the business um, that Jay-Z has built. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I know that's kind of a low-hanging fruit answer because obviously there's other people in the world that are, are really interesting. Um, if I could go back in history, it would probably be Marcus Aurelius. Um, but if we're talking about current, I, I would say I'd really like to sit down with Jay-Z and, and talk about um, kind of what he's built from a, from a business standpoint because it's really impressive. Got it. It's an awesome answer. Uh, what would you say brings you the most happiness in life? My family, hands down. No question. Those, those, that, that is my rock, man. My brother is my best friend in the world. Um, my mom is, is a rock star and, and me and her are super close. And I was fortunate because of our situation. Like we almost grew up together. Right. So like me, like I don't have like a typical like mother son relationship with my mom. Like she's not overbearing. She's not over my shoulder. Like we're able to just talk. Um, so, so my mom is, is, is a huge part of my life. My brother is, is my best friend. Um, yeah, my family brings me joy, man, every day of the week. And other than that, I love fishing. And I love the golf. Got it. Awesome. I think uh, we all love our family and then few of the other things to keep us sane uh, while we can, but David, you've done a lot of incredible stuff, you know, best of luck with the edge coaching. Uh, on a final note, do you have anything else you want to share, whether it's life advice, relationship advice, business advice, uh, final word is yours, my man. Um, do the work on yourself, you know, be who you needed. Like, um, the, the whole goal of this, this journey that we're on in life is, is to be the best version of you. Right. And so be willing to do the work on yourself and sit there in the mirror and really ask yourself the hard questions, dive down the rabbit holes, press on the push, uh, press on the places that hurt, um, and have the, the comfort or the, not the comfort, but the, the courage, um, to sit in that and, and be able to be yourself authentically, man. It's, it's so freeing, um, when you're willing to do that work on yourself and you can show up every day as the same person and not have to worry about what mask to put on or try and conform to somebody else's idea of who you're supposed to be. Like who you are is special and who you are can be great. You just have to do the work to build it. Um, so that's, that's the, the biggest lesson that I would, you know, advice that I would leave out there for people. Um, and then obviously, you know, if there's ever anybody that wants more information on us, we can give their, give the, uh, all the, the socials and stuff here at the end, if you'd like us to do that. Yep. Well, I'll have that on the episode link. So people will be able to contact Perfect. you and reach out. Uh, but 
Dave, that was an awesome answer. And thanks so much for taking the time to go on the show. Thank you, Daniel. You do a good job, man. Best of luck to you. And if there's ever anything I can do to help you out, let me know. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to my conversation with David Kitchen. If you enjoyed the episode, rate the show on Spotify, drop a comment on YouTube, and subscribe.